Podcast World, what's up? Chad Belding back at you. Another episode of The Foul Life. Thank you all so much for the continuous support of what we have going here with all of our brands from Bandit and Avery to Foul Life, our podcast, and soon to be the provider. Thank you all so much again for the downloads and the subscriptions. Our podcasts are growing every week, and we're truly humbled by that. Please continue to support the partners and sponsors that support us. Today's episode of The Foul Life podcast is brought to you by the one and only Benelli, Simply Perfect. They use that motto for a reason because it truly is, and I've said it a hundred times if I said it once when those ducks or geese present you with that shot might be of a lifetime it might be of that week in camp you might be a weekend warrior we all don't get to hunt every day but when they do it right and they present themselves back flapping over those decoys we want a gun that goes bang 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 every time because we've worked so hard for that moment to happen and that's why we rely on Benelli there is not even a second close in my opinion it is the waterfowl gun that all waterfowl hunters strive to shoot and um, we are so humbled to have them as our title sponsor for the last eight seasons and now that we have the Super Black Eagle 3 the left handed I've heard little ramblings that there might even be some new stuff coming out in 2022 and i'm excited as heck about that but i'm not privy to that information maybe we can get a little bit of a hint out of our guest today i'm not saying we will for sure but i might try to prod him a little bit my guest today of the podcast is the vp the vice president of marketing for benelli usa tim joseph tim you don't just hunt one species or just one location you've been all over the world hunting i i have and and um Boy, talk about feeling lucky to be that guy. Um, I have. I've, I've been on on camera and, and off camera for hunts uh, all around the world uh, with with Cabela's, um, with um, with Woolrich, um, with Benelli, and um, boy, I've got just some great memories of of a lot of different hunts in a lot of different places. So I feel very fortunate to have been able to do that as as part of my job. It's it's something I love, but it's also been something I've been able to integrate into a career. So. Yeah. And you it's, you know, they say, if you get to do that in life that you really don't work or you really don't have a job. Um, is there one that <clears throat> let's say that somebody said that you have one left has to be in the continental 48. What would it be? Wow. You know, I've been asked this before and it's just so, it's so hard for me to, to say, I mean, it's hard to beat just a great, you know, they're also different, right? It's, it's really hard to beat the camaraderie of, of a duck blind. So I guess I probably, if I had to pick one, it would be a duck blind with my four boys. Ooh, That'd nice. probably be the one. If I knew I could only do one more, I'd have them all together in a duck blind. Um, but I love elk. There's something about that that gets my blood pumping. I'm an avid turkey hunter that gets my blood pumping. So yeah, it's, uh, but probably, Probably a duck blind with my boys. If I only, if I could just do one. So when you talk like that and you say that your last hunt would be with your four boys, what does that mean to have that with your, with your, your sons, your, I mean, your, your immediate family, you were brought up in a hunting family. I assume your four boys were with what you did. What does that mean to you? Like when you lay your head down at night and, and, and think about, man, I could literally have four of my boys that me and my wife raised and just have an amazing duck hunt. Um, yeah, boy. Um, I, it's, it's really hard to put it into words. I, I think, you know, we're, 
we're proud of all of our boys. They're, they're, they're great, great kids. And um, they're not really kids so much anymore. They're all adults. They all, uh, three of the four are married and uh, we have grandkids as well. But I think the, the ability to, I think, have something, you know, not only with boys live beyond you with sort of a legacy um, of, of hunting, that's something that's so close to my heart. I really, I, I value the fact that they, they enjoy that as well. They're, they're all hunters. They're great shots. Um, uh, we, like I said, we've shared some great times in a duck blind. And I think one of the things that I, the reason I say that about the waterfowling is we've shared great times hunting everything from, you know, whitetail to, to turkeys, but the ability to have the camaraderie and, and chat in the blind and cook breakfast. And, you know, it was, it was an event. Um, every time we went out, there was a little bit of a feeling of an event to it. And, uh, and just the joking. And we still have some episodes that, uh, that we laugh about, um, sometimes at my expense, uh, uh, that, uh, that just happened that were, were, were great. So do you, did you have a lot of experiences growing up as a, you know, with your father that you got to do the same thing? Um, my father, I, I grew up in, in Ohio. And so waterfowling wasn't a big thing for me there. I mean, I didn't really get into even sort of jump shooting ducks until I was, it was um, my late teens, early twenties. Um, and so it was small game, mostly uh, rabbits, uh, pheasants, quail. Uh, back then we had pheasants and quail in Ohio. That's pretty rare now where I grew up, but uh, the clear cut farming and whatnot has caused a lot of that to go away. Uh, squirrels as well. Uh, we would hunt as well. Um, so I didn't get into duck hunting until later in life. And, and it was one of those things because I had gotten into a whole bunch of other things I had done. Uh, I'd gotten into to whitetail hunting with bow. I'd gotten into it with muzzleloader. I'd gotten into it with rifle. Um, I raised and trained my own bird dogs for Upland when I was with, with Orvis. And then after that as well, and, and loved that. Those were great experiences. And I, I always knew that waterfowl or waterfowl was kind of sitting off to the side. And I almost sort of intentionally didn't go into it because I knew that if I got into it, I was going to get into it in a big way. And I also knew it was a fairly equipment intensive sport. So when I went to Cabela's, I moved there between Christmas and, and New Year's and two of my boys moved with me when we went there. Um, and my wife stayed behind to take care of some things with the house and was going to come out later. And my boss from there, great guy by the name of Tom Rosdale, asked me what I was going to do that, that next weekend. And I said, I don't know, probably unpack boxes. And he said, no, you're not. He said, why don't you go take your boys over to the Cabela's store, get your licenses. And he goes, you're going to go out to my, my waterfowl leads. And boy, did we get a show. Um, he had a lease on the plat. And we got there and we did great with the hunting itself. But the show that was taking place beyond that, the thousands of ducks and the thousands of geese that we saw rising up out of the marsh and, and traveling that river corridor. Um, you want to talk about the hook getting set <laughs> deep. Um, that that led to suddenly I pretty much needed a bay of my garage. It was dangerous to have an employee discount. Oh, at gosh. Cabela's in Western Nebraska, uh, I could tell you that. So um, it, it's been been a part of me ever since. So before I knew it, I was actually a, 
a part of two leases that were already established. And I had established over the course of the next couple of years, established two more of my own. So, wow. Uh, it was, uh, it was, it was great. And, and again, a lot of those times were most precious times I had there were the, the times that were shared with my boys. So that was one of those deals to where when you got hooked on it, you, it's like every waterfowler. We've been doing a lot of gear episodes lately about you just, nobody cuts corners in this game when it comes to the arsenal. And it's like, how much more do we need? How did, how did our grandparents and how did the the hunters before them have any success at all? It's almost like we're breeding a smarter bird with the, the tech technology in, in, you know, the decoys, the way we hide, the way we can access places, the choke tubes, the patterning, the ammo, the guns. I mean, how did our forefathers, how did our grandparents ever even have success? Yeah, I think you're right. I think, I think, um, I think we've educated a number of species. Um, I've, I've seen it, I believe with turkeys, um, that are in, in many ways much more cautious than they used to be. Certainly you can still take turkeys, uh, but, they just and they uh, they get a little dumber during uh, during the time that we hunt them for sure. But but I you know I think that um, I think everything is just a little bit. I think we've escalated the game, and I think that they've they've adapted to some degree. Um, I, I've literally watched birds in a in a in an area where there were blinds that had been set up for long periods of time, including along the plat, that would literally fly zigzag patterns. They just seemed to know that this area was trouble and that area was trouble and they would literally sort of go down the, the pathway at sort of a zigzag. So, yeah, it's a, but is that, that area as a whole, that I 80 corridor and a lot of that Platte river corridor, man, that late season, right? Like when it would get cold late November, December, January, it turned into like pure magic. Yes. Uh, just the sounds, you know, I, for me, I love to hunt and I love, don't, don't get me wrong. I love to take, to take game, but I really think that a lot of this becomes hunting becomes the stage, I think for a lot of, of great memories and a lot of experiences that if you're not there at that time, if you don't get up that early, you don't see some of the things that you get to see as a, as a hunter. Um, I had my wife out one time with me. She's not an avid waterfowler, but a friend of mine and his wife, uh, a friend of mine decided to take his wife and, and invited us to go. And so we went to uh, his place. We saw the most amazing set of, of sun dogs that, that I've ever seen. And I've shared the photos with people since because we took them. They lasted a couple of hours and it literally looked like a triple sunrise. Now, had we not been up on an 11 degree morning at, uh, you know, four o'clock to get out there and set up and get ready to go, we wouldn't have seen that that sunrise come up and hadn't seen that, that, that event. So though, I think those are the things that are really special to me. It's, it's the hunt, but it's the things that happen around the hunt as well. Yeah. And I'm looking on my phone. You, you had either sent me that picture or at shot show, you showed it to me on your phone and that was absolutely amazing. The, the sun dogs of, of, and you were, in, were you in the blind when you took that? We were, we wow, were, that's so cool. And you know, that particular morning was okay for ducks. It wasn't a spectacular morning for ducks, but it was a spectacular morning for that particular event. And it's one of the ones that I remember as much or more than some of the times that we had in the blind where we just really, you know, took a lot of ducks. So. Does Tim Joseph, does evolution bother you? Do you, are you a, are you a man that, 
wants to be back. And I remember growing up when I'd open my mailbox and get a Cabela's catalog and my dad would like flip out like I did with, you know, catalogs when I got to the age of buying stuff. And then when I first made that trip across I-80 and I was in Nebraska, I was playing baseball, um, a summer league in Colby, Kansas. And I saw that bronze elk and I saw those yellow letters on the side of the wall. And it was back when Sydney was, you know, there was Carney, a littler store, but Sydney was the place. And we went in, we pulled into the parking lot and I lost my mind. There was ducks and geese out in the pond. There was people just crowding in there and fly. It's not like that anymore. It's almost been diluted and, and saturated to where hunters today will with the Amazons and the way that people are ordering and doing their shopping now. I don't know if, if hunters really will ever even understand what I'm talking about when I say that feeling of seeing that bronze from I-80 and then getting off of that, that exit and pulling into that parking lot in Sydney. There was something, there was people that came from all over the world to do that. I had a similar experience and it's not, not hunting, but um, as my kids would turn 12 or 13, and they were roughly three or four years apart each, as they would turn 12 or 13, I would take them on a one-on-one -on -one fishing trip with me for big king salmon with fly rods on the Pier Marquette River in northern Michigan. And no matter where we were living at the time, we would find a way to get there. We would either fly or if we were closer, we would drive. And that was part of our, our experience. We would, we would stop at the Cabela's store on the way up there. And we would spend a morning or an afternoon, depending on the timing of the drive or the time that we got there. We would actually spend some time just going in. So we'd, we'd buy a couple things. The kids would get something that they would, or the, the boy that was with me at the time would get something that you know he would have that would hopefully be a remembrance of that trip and special to him. Um, and you talk about evolution. I think things have changed tremendously. And I was I was thinking about this even before the the podcast. You know, I, I sort of hate to mention it, but I've seen six decades now here on, on Earth. And it when I was growing up, you had a, a, a an uncle or a parent, you know, typically your father teach you about the sport. And it became something that was sort of embedded in the family unit. It was something that your family did. And I, I have a great love for that. And I think that's one of the things that that we're losing a bit today. You know, we didn't have videos at the time. We didn't have, there was very little in the way of television programming that featured people doing this. You know, maybe American Sportsman was about it early on. So you read about it in books or you read about it in magazines. So, you know, we lived vicariously, I think many of us through those, you know, we get the field and stream, we get the outdoor life, we get the fur fishing game, we get those magazines and we read about it but we didn't have the visual experience of looking at it on, on videos. And I, I love mentoring kids and getting them into the, to the outdoors. I try to do as much of that as, as I can and teaching uh, people to shoot who haven't shot, even if it's just clays. And when I take young people out to hunt, it's, it's funny to me how many of them seem to think that a hunting experience happens in a sort of 30 minute episode. You know, if 15 or 20 minutes go by, I think they think, gee, I've got 10 minutes left until the show's over and nothing's happened yet. I think just getting kids to understand the rhythm of what that's like to get back out into it and, and be on the rhythm of nature and not the rhythm of, of, of so much of a, of a more urban environment today and so many electronic distractions 
Um, it's tough. There's a lot of things that pull kids different directions. When I was growing up, if you were involved in sports, you still had time for hunting or fishing or the things that you like to do. It was not nearly as intensive. I watched that change with my boys as they played sports, where sports became an almost an all-encompassing thing. You had school and you had that sport. There was very little time for anything else. And I think that's all affected, to some degree, the number of, of people we have in the sport today. Do you think that on the, the devil's advocate that you could potentially attract more people because of the number of eyeballs and the impressions that social media is making? Yeah, I think that's the plus side is that people, I think, now have a little bit of an easier. Uh, it's there's still a pretty I think there's still a fairly steep barrier to entry for people who want to get into the sport. You know, it's not inexpensive to get licensed these days. Um, it's not inexpensive to uh, get your ammo. It's not inexpensive to find a place sometimes to hunt. Uh, hopefully you can find some public land where you can do it. The gear, again, we talked about the gear. The gear can be a bit of an obstacle. Um, but at least now we have ways to show people how you should be doing it. Um, you're, you're, you're a perfect example of that. Pretty difficult to tell people how to blow a duck call in a, a written piece of material, right? Yep. The video is a thousand times better for that because you, you hear it, you have the experience, you can actually see what somebody's doing with that. So I think that gives people a little bit um, of a step up on being able to understand what they might get into when they're out there. But it's funny, as much as I can take people out, even who've been watching those shows, putting it together when they're there, when you're actually out there and putting it together in the environment, that's the magic. Yeah, I agree hundred percent. And I think that sometimes whether it's me or somebody that gets a, a chance to hunt quite a bit, we take it for granted that everybody can just go out and put that together and find what you called the rhythm of the hunt. I love that. The rhythm of the hunt, like how to get it to jail and how to, how to experience all of it, whether it's taking the dog out of the kennel or the starting of the UTV or the bow or the throwing of the decoys and the splash. How do you, how do you get that out there? The rhythm of the hunt. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I think it's important. And I, you know, I, I'm passionate about the sport, but I also don't want to, I'm, I'm passionate about the sport. I would love to see it continue. I would love to see my grandkids and my great grandkids have similar opportunities that we have today to get out and experience that. I would never want to force it on anybody who didn't want to hunt, but I also would love to see that opportunity continue for those that do. Um, so I, you know, it's, why I think it's important to try to make sure that we do whatever we can to make it welcoming for the next, the, the next generation, um, whether or not those people have that experience in their household. We, we have a great program here in Southern Maryland and it's, it's called young guns. And I give this group a tremendous amount of credit. You know, we're involved. We support it through Benelli, which um, I'm, I'm proud of. But a number of us from Benelli also participate in actually taking these kids out one-on-one. -on -one. And so for us being relatively close to an urban center like Washington, D.C., we have, we have last, of course, we couldn't do it this year in the same way because of COVID. But last spring, we had 55 kids who signed up. 
Um, this program is actually, um, it's, it's announced when kids take their hunter education in this area that if you're interested in having a hunting experience, contact this organization and they can maybe get you set up with a mentor. We had 55 kids with 55 one-on-one -on -one mentors that took kids turkey hunting. So the first day of youth, we took the kids out. Uh, we, they, they did a morning hunt. We had a, we had a midday hot dog and hamburger lunch. We did a turkey shoot with the kids. We gave away prizes from some of our partners and some people that uh, we had asked to donate some goods to. So um, you folks who are part of that, and we appreciate that as well. And those kids just had a great time. And those who wanted to go back out that maybe didn't get their turkey uh, could go back out and try again in the afternoon. Those had gotten their turkey in the morning, brought them back to that lunch and got to share that experience and the pride of having taken that turkey. Um, I had a 16-year-old girl on that hunt last year, and she took her first turkey ever. And I was happier for her than if I had taken the bird. And it was a beautiful bird. It was 18 and a half pounds. It had a 10-inch beard with inch, inch spurs. Her first bird. And she was just over the moon about this experience. I hope that that's something that she'll keep with her for a long time and go back and do that. And she's actually indicated an interest in at some point coming back and doing the same thing and being a mentor. I think those are the things that we need to do today as, as folks in the industry is get somebody out shooting, get somebody out on a hunt experience and break down that barrier that might be intimidating. I kind of compare this to golfing because I didn't grow up in a golfing family. And so golfing to me, quite honestly, has always been a little bit intimidating. I really don't know the etiquette. I really don't know the sport. I mean, I've been out and I've done it a few times, but it's not sort of something that I'm 100% comfortable with because it's not something that I grew up with and I, and I did. So nobody sort of wants to be foolish about that, right? Nobody sort of wants to get out there and find out that you're not doing it correctly. It takes some guts to sort of go out and try it if you, if you don't have somebody to help you. If you have somebody to help you and you kind of do it and you see how it's done, uh, I think it's it's a wonderful thing. And I've watched people go from being intimidated by a gun. Um, I've had young people who've never shot a gun before that I would take them out to shoot clays and never had pulled a trigger on a gun before. We get them through some basic shooting techniques and how you hold the gun, shoot a few without the clays. And boy, when those kids start breaking, I say kids, we're talking about, you know, maybe 13, 14, 16 year old kids, even up to young 20s. I've had young 20 year olds out that have never shot one. You watch them break those first clays and you watch that smile that comes over their face and you watch them no longer be intimidated by the gun in their hands. Man, to me, that's magic. It's just absolutely, it just, it, it's wonderful to me to watch them kind of go, Oh, this isn't an evil thing. Yeah, I think like the transgression and the progression of the clay, you know, the safety, missing a clay and then to hitting a clay and then in the turkey woods and hearing the woods wake up or maybe even getting to go the day before and the night, the evening before and put a bird to bed on the roost. What is your opinion, Tim, on as what if that 13, 14 or 16 year old boy or girl says, hey, I want to try duck hunting. And now it's waders are on, we're in a boat, we try to pick a good day to bring a kid out there, we try to pick a day that we're going to have some success to breed some confidence. What is your opinion on the 
the law enforcement part of the waterfowling mystique, the mystique of law enforcement. Where I'm going with that is the identification, all of the all of the different things that you need to have in your psyche to get to that point to where you're doing it right ethically and legally. Because in turkey hunting, if you're in the east, you're going to see an eastern. If you're in the Midwest, you're going to see a Rio Grande, maybe an eastern, maybe a Miriam cross up in Nebraska, Montana. When you're out in California. Same thing, but you can kill whatever comes in one bird a day, and then you can go for your grand slam or your world slam. In duck hunting, you might be in an area to where some redheads buzz you, then teal come in, and then a black duck comes in, and then a sprig comes in, then a hidden sprig comes in. What is your opinion on? Because uh, it's so intimidating, right? That's that's got to be one of the reasons. Maybe maybe it's a cormorant, right? So. Yes, that's got to be one of the that's got to be one of the reasons, Tim. That that duck hunters are the least amount of hunters out of every sector of turkey, predator, deer you know, and then waterfowling. Yeah, I think so. And I think, uh, again, I, I think the, the kids that I've had out, um, all the ones that I've had out have been quite good about understanding that there were things that you could take and things that you couldn't. Um, and I guess maybe I've just been very fortunate to have kids who also seem to enjoy the experience. Obviously, they want to pull the trigger and obviously they want to be successful on the hunt. But I've had kids that were really good listeners in terms of you know, here's what you can shoot. Here's what you can't shoot. I'll tell you when you can shoot. Let's make sure that that you're on something that you can can take legally. Um, and it's an education process. And the hope is that it takes enough that they want to learn more and learn more on their own and learn more about identification and learn more about the right kinds of equipment to use and the right kind of and the legal kind of shells. Um, it's a lot. It we we do put a lot on it today that we didn't necessarily have four or five decades ago. Um, I can remember when I first started hunting, and again, this is going to date me, but I can remember in Ohio that I could fit the regs book in my 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 jacket pocket of my upland coat. Can't do that anymore. No. So um, I need a backpack now. So um, it, it, I, think I think we make it sometimes a little overly complicated. Um, for the and, and I believe me, I'm I'm all for rules and regulations, and I'm and I'm also also all for wildlife conservation and doing it right and the the biology of this. But we do make things sometimes so difficult that as a lifelong hunter, I actually have to sometimes call DNR and go, "What did you mean by this?" Because it seems to counter con- contradict this. And, and then you got the state, then you got the state and the federal. I couldn't probably tell them tales, but I've had DNR officers go, well, we're not quite so sure either. So that's crazy. Because so right? then you got, the state, you got the state agency and then you got the federal agency and you got rules that apply to, especially in waterfowling. And you've got, you've got the law enforcement side and you've got the biology that sometimes get a little bit crossed as well. It, it's complicated. It is complicated. So. But if yeah. you can get past all that, we can provide people with some some wonderful experiences. But I, I think that's why, to some degree, we sort of need to figuratively take them by the hand and get them out there in the experience so they can kind of see, okay, at least here's the foundation of what this is all about. And I know I have more things to learn, but if I learn these things, I can really have this kind of experience again. And we hope that it's a good one that they'll want to come back and, and participate in. And how do you think that we take the explosion of 
of anglers and fishermen and fisherwomen in the country, COVID has shown us that there's a lot of people that are buying a fishing license. How do we take that to the next level of saying, hey, if you love this, how about trying this? Is what, What's your opinion on that? Well, I think I think part of what COVID has done is it's it's and there may be some good that comes from this. We've broken the mold just a little bit in terms of being so regimented with our schedules. Um, you know, we're still working. We're still working from home. But I think sometimes the desire to get away from home, there's even commercials out now that make jokes about this, about the dog getting being tired about being walked because everybody in the family wants to get outside, you know, and keep calling the dog. Finally, the dog's hiding under the table. Um, I think the fact that we want to get outside and, you know, bike sales are way up. Fishing sales are through the roof. Um, I just talked to one of my counterparts the other day in the fishing industry, and they were talking about how they just, they, it's unprecedented growth right now. I hope that translates to more of a communication with the outdoors and more of a desire to be outdoors and participate in some of these things that we've lost a little bit. And I do hope that translates to hunting, not only for the fact that I work for Benelli, but, you know, I, it's a, it's a double-edged sword, right? We talk about this and we say we want more people, you know, in the space. And then we talk about overcrowded public places. Um, so there is a double-edged sword here. But I think in in general that the future of the sport is safer and better. If we have more people who have an interest in wanting to preserve and protect what we can do. And when you're, when you start, when you're mentoring, cause I love, I love the idea of mentorship. I think it's so key in hunting and fishing. We take it for granted that all of us grew up in a hunting family. I did. I know a lot of people that didn't. There's programs out there that will help get young men, young women involved, even adults that have never done it. There's guys and girls breaking in in their twenties and their thirties and forties into the outdoors right now. Do you, do you not preach? I don't want to use the word preach, but do you talk about the importance of the resource, the respect of the resource, the compassion of the animal to the animal, and then the conservation part of it, the habitat part of it, and that we all have to be thinking uh, that way also. It's not just about, there's like these maturity steps that you go through. Limits are so awesome. Piles make smiles. Take your picture. Everybody's holding up their limits of greenheads on the Platte River. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, the sunset, it's this, and it's the camaraderie, and it's the stories, and the campfires and then it's wow what about what we have to do to maintain this and have our kids and our grandkids and their kids doing it right so that conservation part is key to benelli and yourself too right it is you know we're we're closely aligned with all of the major you know conservation organizations and we really applaud what they have done and what they continue to do to make sure that they're continuing the sport and you know it would it's certainly worth mentioning that all of them have their youth programs as part of those components as, as well from the Jake's program and the national wild Turkey Federation to, you know, the, um, uh, ducks unlimited to, to, to Delta, all of them have something that's a youth component. And I think that that that's a really good, good piece of that. You know, what you hit on there, I think is it's heady, right? There's a whole lot here. There's a whole, there's a whole lifestyle that's wrapped up in this. It's, you know, and I, I think, I think you have to ease young people into that uh, because I think if you're not careful, it does become preachy. It does become something that's a little tough for them to understand. 
I think you do have to get them successful first on animals. I would compare this to fishing. You know, catch and release is wonderful. And I applaud catch and release where it makes sense. But the kids that I've taken out fishing, I I go out for things that I don't catch and release because there's nothing quite like that person taking home their first batch of fish to help feed their family. That's a there's pride in that that I think makes a connection that's deeper than trying to somehow embed a conservation ethic of catch and release immediately. I think that can come later as as they understand the sport and hopefully have a love for the sport in a way that they get a deeper understanding of what surrounds that sport. The word you used in there was heady. Heady. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of educated, but does this mean that it's like, it's gotta be thought about? It's like a well thought out process. What's the definition of heady? Well, I think, I think it's heady in the sense that we have an awful lot going on here. I mean, it's not just a hunt. It's there's, there's a lifestyle that surrounds it that I think those of us who love the sport really would like everybody to enjoy the lifestyle as well. And not just sort of run out and kill some ducks and then go back and never think about that again until they go back out a year later and go kill some ducks. Those of us who are involved in this sport, and this is where it gets difficult to sometimes I think see, see this clearly because we're so close to it is how do we then, that's why, that's why I say it's heady. There's a lot that goes on. There's the laws, there's the ethics, there's the, there's the conservation aspect of it. There's the future of the sport. Trying to dump all of that. And I, and I do say dump because it's a lot to take in. It would be having a young person sort of drink from the fire hose. I think we have to take a, play a longer game there um, and when we get kids involved. Um, let them enjoy the sport. Let them see what it's all about. Let them see the camaraderie. Let them enjoy a breakfast in the blind. Let them enjoy getting some shots and hopefully taking some animals. And then we hope that we can get them beyond that to talk about and to learn about the conservation piece of it. Otherwise, I think it can be almost too much like it's just this is too much. So what about when I'm at Max Prairie Wings for the Fall Fest or the Wings Over the Prairie Festival in November or, you know, like right now this week and they're having their Fall Fest every August. Obviously, with COVID, things are different now. What about. What about the the different outdoor shows? Cabela's used to have the most awesome events. Ducks Unlimited there. Remember the Ducks Unlimited events in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, and Memphis, Tennessee. I remember being there in 2003 and seeing the four-wheelers and the fishing demonstrations and the duck calling contests and goose calling. It was just awesome. We've lost that in a way, too, of all of these external events. I know Rogers has a good one. Max still has a good one. But there used to be so many destinations to travel to to get a taste of this. Up in Up in your area of Maryland, there was... The world goose used to be gigantic, and I was there again last year, and it's kind of dwindled away. We got to figure out a way, like instead of going to Disneyland, what if we take our kids to Stuttgart, Arkansas, and experience that and see kids their age wearing camouflage with a duck call, you know, tucked into the chest pocket and a boat behind their mom's car and their, you know, like what if we did that mindset instead of the Disneyland or the beach all the time, and we said, no, we're going to go check this out. I. I think that would be great. I would love to see it. And I'm hopeful that we'll get back to a situation where these pre-COVID events 
are something that can happen again. Because let's face it, you know, the, the, the proximity that we have to be in with even teaching a youngster, you, you know, you, you can't hand a youngster a gun that hasn't shot that gun and then step 10 yards away and cross your arms and kind of go, well, good luck. Mm-hmm. You really have to sort of be there to make sure that if you have to get a hold of it, if you have to stop a swing when somebody gets excited where they turn around to, to, to talk to you, you have to have some control there. And so there's a there's a proximity that's involved that you have to really also kind of um, watch out for in a COVID environment. I hope we can get back to that again. Um, uh, you know, this year, instead of taking out a youth, I took out um, an adult who was interested in, in turkey hunting. And it turned out to be sort of the perfect social distancing sport because we met separate vehicles, stayed six feet apart. Um, I went out, put out the decoys, was able to get back further back behind the shooter and do the calling. Wasn't something where I had to sort of be right there close to them to make sure that there was a safety aspect. They were certainly very familiar with um, with guns. So not a problem in that sense. So there's still ways you can do it. You just have to modify it now for COVID. But I I hear you, and I hope that we're able to get some of these things back into the mix um, because it's so hands-on. Um, even, even shows for us, what we think about today, what we do at shows is we hand people a gun, and the first thing that a person does is they want to put it up to their cheek. They want to see how it feels. They want to see how it fits. They want to see how it swings. That's a COVID nightmare right now to, to do that sort of thing. So. We have to figure out some new ways to, to get the point across. Yeah, you, you picture a gun counter in everyday retail America, you know, pre-COVID of, of the stories being told, the, the energy around it. I, w- I had a friend tell me last night that he went to an Oakley sunglasses dealership yesterday. There's one of these, you know, stores in the mall. Mask on, one person at the counter at a time. Glasses on the head, off the head, wiped down completely. They, after they took that pair back, they would take another pair off for him to try and then wipe. The, and I'm just like, man, it's just like it, it, times are I don't know if this is the new normal. I, I, I liked what you said earlier, Tim, about the new normal of maybe corporations are seeing that they can still get a lot of production with this new mindset of working from home. Schedules are a little bit different. You know, it used to be mom was soccer practice, volleyball practice, uh, get, get halftime food for the, the baseball game, or you're, you're in charge of orange slices and Capri suns. And it was just this mad dash. And now it's like, I had my buddy in Arkansas, Lenny, tell me the other day, he's like, my kids are catching crappie, they're mowing the lawn, they're learning home ec, they're doing things that we didn't have time to do because of the hustle and bustle, right? Yeah, I, I think that's that's a good thing, and, and I hope nobody gets me wrong about this. I think sports are great, and I think they're important, and I think that the kids that want to play sports should be playing sports. But I think that maybe we had taken it to an extreme. Um, I remember with my kids playing sports, that there was, they were practicing every night and then we had travel games on the weekends. And so that was the idea of, for instance, even doing a camping trip during a season was pretty tough to pull off. And there were times that uh, I got some angry looks from coaches because I was telling them that my son would not be there that day because they were either going to go duck hunting or they were going on a fishing trip. And that's tough. It puts a kid in a tough position too. So I think there's, 
I would love to see us have a balance where we can enjoy those things without having it be as intense as it has become, I think, for, for much of America. And maybe COVID will help us reset that a little bit. It seems to be the case with at least like you, we talked about with fishing and with biking. It seems like people are having some time now to do this. And one of the things I'm encouraged by is the fishing stats that we're hearing. There's an awful lot of young people that's 16 to early 20s age that are making up a large portion of those those that group that's coming back to fish. That's great news, I think, for us as, a, as an outdoor industry. And the other thing that you touched on, Tim, was um, you, you, made, you made a comment earlier about the bounty, the cooking of the wild game, the preparation of the wild game. One thing I've seen in COVID is a lot of people are, are, are curious. Really? Yes. That's wild turkey? Yes. Well, where did you get it? Um, I was here. Well, what, what kind of duck is this? I'm like, this tastes like beef. And they're like, I want to learn that duck recipe. I literally, before we started this podcast, got a text about a guy that he had my striper fish out of the Sacramento river the other night. And he's like, I want to go catch some of those fish. That was the best fish I've ever tasted. So that curiosity is growing of this living off the land mentality, coming full circle sustainability. If you're going to go out and take the responsibility of aiming a weapon, whether it's a muzzleloader, a bow and arrow, a shotgun or a rifle or a slingshot and take an animal's life, we're going to learn how to skin it, butcher it, process it, cook it and eat it. You know what I'm saying? It's like people are learning to do that right now. And I think that's great. You know, the farm to table movement has, has we benefited from that because there are people who would love to have a pheasant on their table and not have to go buy it at a farmer's market. Um, so that's, that's a good thing for us. And I hope that continues. And I, um, not to sort of circle back too much on the, on the young guns piece, but I'd mentioned that we got 55 kids out last year. That organization got 55 kids out for Turkey hunting. They got, I believe the number was 97 out for whitetail. Wow. And those are 97 kids with one-on-one -on -one mentors. So 97 mentors, 97 kids all going out to learn about taking a whitetail and then having that ability to provide that food for their family. That's so awesome. That, I it's a great thing. Great thing. I've always said to, I've said it a lot to him that, I don't think there's a cooler lifestyle. I don't think that you could have a cooler, and I mean cool is in swagger and and just feeling good about an aura and attitude of being able to go out and, and hone your skills to, to entice an animal in, lure an animal in, stalk an animal, spot and stalk, whatever it is, and then be able to take that and be, I've always been envious of butchers, Tim. Like when I watch a good butcher work a set of knives, I'm like, man, I wish I could use knives like that and know every body part and cut on a, whether it's a cow or a pig or a deer or a moose or whatever. I'm just like, I want to get to that point to where I can hang it and be like, you know, Nick Munt on Bone Collector. He's like, boom, boom, boom. Here's the tenderloin. Here's the back strap. Here's the shoulder rump and, and all this. And I'm like, that is the coolest way to live. And then not to mention taking it in and being able to open up a, 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 a crock pot or, or, you know, whatever, a crock pot's kind of a, that's another way of cooking wild game, but that was a bad example. But, you know, just taking the lid off of that serving tray and being like, voila, do you guys remember when we were on the Platte River and these mallards came in and they did the dance over the decoys and we said, get them. And the dog brought them back in that cold weather, water and he's, his steam's coming out of his mouth and he got up and shake with all the pride in the world to deliver that duck to hand. And now here we are delivering it to our friends. That whole deal is so cool to me. If we taught the kids, like that's what we're trying to get to is that whole over all encompassing 
lifestyle? I hunt with a guy that is out of Ken Island here, an amazing guy with an amazing boat, um, uh, Captain Tillman. And um, he's got a boat called the Breeze and Through. And he does this, and we've had people that have not had this experience, even for divers. And this may surprise some people, but we'll go out, we'll hunt. Uh, the boat comes around, and as we, he'll put us on a little camoed up bateau, right? And with a decoy spread, passing ducks come through, we shoot them. Periodically, he sends a boat over, they gather up the ducks, and they take them back, and then we wait for other ones to come through. About mid-morning, he comes back out. This is just part of one of the things that he likes to do. And I think it's great. And it would, this is the kind of thing you can do with kids as well. If you, if you kind of plan on it, he comes back out. And first time he did this, I was really surprised. I had no idea why they were coming back out because we hadn't, didn't have any ducks down. Comes back out and he's got a, he's got a, a paper plate, stack of paper plates. that's wrapped in foil and they come over and with a smile on his face, it kind of flips it to the, to the, the little boat that we're in and we catch it and we open it up and it's a bunch of duck poppers that he's made from ducks that we took that morning. Oh man. And so we're sitting there eating duck poppers from ducks that were flying less than an hour ago. That's the kind of thing that I think you can integrate as well, even in a, in a, you know, a Midwestern duck blind or a, a, a an Eastern duck line, you can do that, you know, and, and take some of that right away and, and, let people know there's a connection here that can be made that's beyond the hunt, beyond the taking of the animal. Yeah, I think that so. that's the most important part, right? I do sound like I'm getting preachy. Am I getting preachy? No, I think that when you say things like beyond the hunt, beyond the tr- beyond the pull of that trigger, I've I've tried to get into my my mindset in my delivery is that's so minuscule, man. There's so much, but you know, six months before that pull, that trigger even happens. I'm not saying that the adrenaline rush isn't there. Don't get me wrong. When a white tail walks under my stand and I had a bow and arrow, man, I freak out. I mean, I literally lose my mind when I see I'm 45 years old. And when I see mallard ducks do it right, whether it's timber or a pea field in Saskatchewan, I lose my mind. Like to the point to where people that, you know, that we are, are mutual friends of ours have called me bad names for not calling the shot because I'm so mesmerized i'm just like why why shoot them look at them like i just want to watch them dance for a minute we'll get our birds but i get mystified by them i'm just like oh my gosh i get like literally no pun intended i have goosebumps right now thinking about being in being on the missouri river in western north dakota with the amount of mallards i've seen up there in early november or mid-november and then the dinners that i've shared with that family the jordan Sargent family him and his wife and kids, the dinners that we've shared there and him teaching me his recipes and me going through mine with him and then maybe having a cold beer and toasting and saying, here's to tomorrow. And then it just starts all over and we get to do it again. You know, I think there may be some people who are maybe forward thinking enough to, to think about setting out to create a lifetime of memories in a sporting lifestyle but I can tell you that I wasn't one of them. I was just passionate about the outdoors and I love doing it. But what you can rack up if you're lucky over a period of years or decades is an amazing amount of experiences in the outdoors that you really never thought you'd have when you started. And that to me is, is very special for me to look, to look back on, to have those, that variety of experiences and again, I, I don't. I would never sit here and tell you that I was smart enough to know that that was going to be what I could look back on and say that that's that's awesome. 
Um, but boy, that that's a unique set of experiences that you can build for yourself if you start out to to do this and you enjoy it. And one thing kind of leads to another and you get a chance to sort of you put this lifelong album together of, of experiences that could just really be for me, it's priceless. Another great word. Like when you think about the I, I could vividly tell stories of when I was nine years old in deer camp with my dad of what, how, you know, detailed, literally people go, how do you remember that? And I'm like, because I can smell the smells. I can, I remember the sound of my dad's trailer door when it would open. I remember what that meant. I remember his 1972 Ford F-250 long bed, red and white. I remember what it sounded like when he started it. I remember what the radio dials look like. I remember what our hooks look like that we hung the deer from these trees in the canyons that we camped in. And they're like, that's a, a very vivid memory. Do you remember your ninth birthday party? Nope, not a clue. Don't even remember where I was. Don't remember if it was Chuck E. Cheese or a roller skating rink. But the outdoors, I could vividly tell people stories of when I was eight and nine years old. Yeah, uh, that's what I mean exactly. I think they're visceral experiences that that just become just a wonderful set of memories if if it's something that you love to do and it's something you choose to build on. So, I, yeah, I think I think this conversation is awesome because you when you read the description oh we're talking with the marketing director of the greatest shotgun company in the world in my humble opinion benelli you would think that people would come on here and we would be marketing benelli we're marketing a lifestyle that benelli showcases and encompasses the culture of Benelli is exactly what we just talked about without saying Benelli really. And you have that logo on your shirt. I wanted to, we, I want to have another podcast and get into what's going on with the Lupo and your experiences and, and what's getting ready. Tell me a little bit real quick to end this. What are we going to see on Sunday? I'm, I'm getting ready to work with Lori on a couple things um, on promotion for this. What are we going to get to see Donnie Vincent do? Donnie Vincent, the flowing locks, the best looking guy in outdoor television. Jim Shockey might argue that a little bit, but what are we? What can we expect? So we had a we had a very unique situation this year where we launched three guns. Typically, we launch a gun, and this year we launched three. So the challenge for us from marketing was how do we give these their kind of fair due and and do we go out and we do three different hunts, three different places across the United States or three different places in the world? How do we go about doing this? And um, one of the people in, in my group, uh, uh, Jared Ream, actually came up with the concept of let's go to this place because we could actually utilize all three of these guns in one spot. So we came out this year with a 20-gauge A28U, which is our over-under platform. So we've had a 12 gauge for five or six years now. And so the 20 gauge has been long anticipated and, and um, something that people have really wanted for a while. So finally we have a 20 gauge A28U over under. We also came out with a proprietary coating called BEST. Benelli surface treatment is what it stands for. And it is uh, something that the engineers um, and the researchers at Benelli in Italy spent over a decade uh, trying to figure out, um, came up with a coating that bonds itself to the metal of a shotgun barrel. And uh, literally, we feel it's so good, we're going to put a 25-year warranty against rust and corrosion on this. And for anybody who hunts in saltwater, and I've done a number of hunts in saltwater, and we've done a number of photo shoots that have been in saltwater environments, you know that a standard gun, almost no matter what it is, 
will develop rust very quickly, generally within hours of, of being exposed to salt water. Um, just very quickly, I'll tell you, we took a barrel that was coated in the best treatment and we put it in a, a brackish saltwater marsh for three months and twice a day it was exposed to the air and then it was covered again in water and then it was exposed to air and covered in water. And we took it out. And one of the ways we presented this to our sales group, just so we could do it in a sort of a dramatic way, was we took that barrel that was still kind of covered in some mud and, and some stuff that had sort of just got caught up in it from being out there. We handed him a cloth and we passed it around the room and we said, um, wipe this off and let us know what you think. By the time the barrel had gotten around the room, it was pristine. So three months in salt water and we had a pristine barrel in front of us that looked like it had just come off the showroom floor. So we have both a Super Black Eagle 3 and we have an Ethos that's treated in that in 12 gauge, uh, not just the barrel, but a number of parts across the gun uh, that we are just very happy with that we've got a uh, very virtually impervious to, to the elements gun. We, Benelli's always been known for get them dirty, get them muddy, get them wet, get them full of sand, rinse them out, dump them out, and continue to shoot. That's that's a reputation of Benelli's, and it's it's well deserved and it's it's documented. But this will take this to yet another level. Um, so that's that's going to be good. We've also taken guns and put them in a wet case and left them there for days and taken them out and also no, no sign of, of any kind of, so, so that's pretty neat. And then lastly, the one that's probably the, the most uh, unique for us is we launched our first bolt action rifle this year, an extremely sub MOA accurate uh, bolt action rifle that Probably it's got it's got seven unique patents, so I could go on and on about what it's got on it. But one of the things that makes this gun particularly unique is that it is roughly the configuration, if you will, of a Super Black Eagle three. And what I mean by that is it doesn't look like a Super Black Eagle three, but it has a stock, it has a receiver, and it has a forend. And what that allows it to do without having a one piece uh, stock on it is it, it allows you to adjust the drop and cast. And as well, the sort of length of pull between your finger and your uh, the grip of the gun on the trigger. Um, there are cheek piece adjustments. There are length of pull adjustments. There's built-in recoil. This gun out of the box comes with the components to make it a custom fit rifle without the expense of gunsmithing. So wonderful gun to shoot. I had a great opportunity to go to South Africa this last year and uh, use that gun. And uh, we had a number of writers there with us. It was a writer's hunt and everybody was extremely impressed with the, uh, the accuracy and the recoil management of, of this gun. So we're very proud of the, of the Lupo. So, and like, like Benelli, Benelli didn't want to come out with just another bolt action rifle. One of the things that's amazing about Benelli and I admire this, Sometimes for us, it can be frustrating because of the time involved. But they don't just go about making a gun that someone else has made and trying to emulate that. The engineers really look at it and their, their mantra really is, how do I make the best possible bolt action rifle? How do we actually make this the best possible bolt action rifle that we can make? So they will then dig into this and they will solve the engineering problems and they will do protos. And then they will ditch those protos and they will do new protos and they just keep going until they get something that they feel is, 
is worthy of the Benelli name and the, the Lupo is certainly that. So, and this so that's the stuff. The, the film actually follows Donnie Vincent over the course of uh, a couple weeks of hunting three different species up there. Well, multiple species, but three different types of, of game with those three platforms. So he goes after caribou with the Lupo multi-action rifle. Um, he hunts sea ducks with the best treated super black Eagle three, and then hunts ptarmigan uh, with the 20 gauge A28U sport. And all of this is done on ADAC, which is a, an island that has a now abandoned former thriving military base. It was a naval base that at one point had almost 8,000 people. The island now has about 100 people. It is a crab boat uh, port. There are a few boats that actually uh, come into that port and have their crabs processed. Um, but other than that, there's not much there. There's no hospital. There's no police force. There's no nothing. So it's a crazy remote. You're actually closer to Russia there than uh, than you would be if you were um, closer to Russia than Anchorage, um, on that far west. Um, so it was, uh, I actually was there as well. It was, it was great. We did a lot of photography and recording of uh, some of our support video for our instructional pieces and our, our commercials. And um, it is a wild place. So Bering Sea on one side and the Pacific on the other, um, crazy waters. Uh, you kind of take your life into your hands every time you get on a boat to go travel around the island to these various places. But uh, boy, talk about exhilarating. Talk about one of those, another page in that album of experiences. Uh, it was wonderful to be there. And uh, we're very proud of the film. Uh, I've had a chance to see it and it's, it's, uh, it's a good one. So Yeah, I can't wait to see it. It actually Sunday. plays both the hunting aspect of it and it really talks a lot about um, the, the base as well and what's happening to the base now that it's really more or less falling into um, to disrepair. So Can Donnie shoot? Yes, he can. He can. He's a good shot. He can I, shoot. He's good a good shot. I'm looking forward yeah, to watching yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, we can all be jealous of the way Donnie looks, but uh I am. Yeah, he's good. Every time I see yeah. him, I kind of want to hit him. He's so Yeah, good he's looking. a good dude, too. I you know, I will tell you that Donnie, you know, I I enjoy being people around people that are down to earth and and um genuine and and Donnie is that uh, it's clear that Donnie loves this. He loves the biology of it. That's his background. He was a biologist and loves that part of it. So it's good to see somebody. And you talk about sort of getting, you'll, you'll see this when you see the film, Donnie gets into talking about some of this. And again, not to the point of being preachy, but talks a little bit about the conservation aspect of these hunts and being on an island with these species. Um, and in some cases, even how they got there. So um Caribou are not native to there. So I don't want to give away too much, but um, caribou were brought there to be a food source in case the military base was cut off by hostile forces. So, wow. And we're going so to be able to find... They were a free herd of cattle, essentially, for for the uh, military base. And this will be available on a website? For yeah, winstofadac.com. The premiere is, uh, the premiere is uh, Sunday, um, just a couple days from now. And uh, so windsofadac.com, and uh, you can actually watch it there 24-7. And then uh, Donnie and the, the, the head Aleutian Outfitters guide, Corey uh, Herndon, will be, um, will be actually doing an after show, a live after show. So 
that'll take place right after. And that'll also be recorded. So even if you don't catch it initially, you'll be able to catch that later as well. So I love it. I can't wait. Three hot seat, hot seat questions for Tim Joseph, VP of marketing Uh for Benella USA. Uh You got to answer them quick. This is the hot seat. You live in Maryland now. You're not originally from there, but are you taking crabs or rockfish for a meal tonight on a Friday night? Hmm. Well, I just had crabs last night, so I guess it'll have to be rockfish. If you and your wife go out tonight and there's a cover band playing on the stage at the restaurant or the outside bar that you choose to go to, what song do you want to hear? Oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, you're stumping me, man. I don't know. You know, here, here's the problem. This is a little bit like hunting. I like too much music. So I jump back and forth between rock and country, western I like it all. So it's a tough question to ask. All right. So then uh, then I'll change it. If the guy on stage said, hey, Tim, would you and your wife please get up here and do Donnie, uh, Dolly Parton and Kenny Rogers Islands in the stream? Could you and your wife pull that one off? Uh, I, if we had to. Wow. You know the words. Last question. What is on the table? Is it a bottle of red wine or is it a nice whiskey on the rocks? And is your wife having a margarita? What is your preference on a Friday night with it being summertime? I, I do enjoy a glass of wine, but I have to tell you, I'm very fond of, of a good bourbon. Good bourbon. So, yep. Tim Joseph, thank you very much. I think we covered a lot today, and I think that uh, we've, we've uh, built on something that we can continue in a second conversation. Do you agree? I agree. I agree. And thank you, Chad. I appreciate it. And, you know, thank you for all that you do for Benelli. Uh, we really appreciate and value the partnership we have with you. Um, you know, you're getting that word out there as well to a lot of people. And it's uh, fun for me to see kids see you at a show and want your autograph and, uh, and all those things. So, uh, so, uh, you are a hardworking man in, in the business and we appreciate it. So thank well, you. We, we're humble and we appreciate our friendship and partnership with you and the Benelli family. I want to do it again. Let's, uh, let's talk off, off camera and off microphone about this coming season. And if we can meet up in California and hang out with Rocky for another day or something. Let's do it. Let's do it. I have to say to the, to the group here that Chad has invited me. How long you invited me for what? Three years, three or four seasons. Now. <laughs> the, the problem is with this. And I got to say this, I want to get this on. I want to get this on record, right? <laughs> it's very difficult for me to get away at the time that you're doing the hunts because I, I wind up, that's the time I'm doing a lot of media hunts. And so when I'm not trying to keep my job at Benelli, which I value highly, I'm in the field at that time. So we're going to get this done. We're going to figure out how to, how to get right. together in a blind here soon. So speckle, I would, I would, speckle uh, bellies. Let's do it. All right. I'll send you some dates, Tim. Thank you very much for being on. This has been another episode of the Foul Eye Podcast. Again, today's episode is brought to you by the best shotguns in the world, Benelli. Check them all out. Super Black Eagle 3, the Ethos, the M2 20 gauge, the 828U in 12 and 20 gauge. I'm so fired up for what's coming in 2021. Let's all get ready for this duck season. Don't forget to grab that wild foul gear issue. Let's get fired up let's do it right stay ethical have respect for the resource stay compassionate about the animals that we pursue and remember to abide by all the laws and regulations for the states or areas that you're hunting in tom hit that button this is 2am logic the song is called my foul life thank you all very much <laughs> <laughs>